fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Today we're setting the table with seeds and stories because we're all thinking about springtime planting. And our first guest is John Koikendall, a legendary seed saver and promoter of heirloom seed and the stories of the people who've saved the seed. And in the March 2019 issue of Food & Wine magazine, John Koikendall has been featured in the publication's first Makers-themed issue, which recognizes 31 game-changing craftspeople redefining cuisine in the United States. So how about that? So today we hear from John about how he became a seed saver and some of the varieties that he saved and where to find old-time heirloom seed like the ones that he saves. And he's going to share some cute little stories. And we'll get to hear from Fred Sossman with his Potluck Radio series. And today Fred features the Lemon Lime Soda from Upper East Tennessee, Dr. Enough. This has been made by Tri-Cities Beverage Company in Johnson City since 1949. Thank you so much for your good company here today. I sure do thank you for tuning in. Now let's get started. Let's start with our first guest, John Koikendall. We'll hear about some of the varieties of seed that he's saved and how he got started as a seed saver. I would say actually with all of my seed-saving endeavors is when you start collecting things, you never realize what diversity there is. Again, we talk about the black-eyed pea. For years and years, that's all I ever saw. It's like talking about butter beans. The green lime is all I saw for years until I began collecting seed and found out just how many different types there were. But these field peas, you can look at the diversity of these. It's just an incredible number of types in the area of seed saving. You know, I've had the theme gardens the last few years. Mm-hmm. Now last year, as you remember, was the William Henry Mile seed catalog. 
that's the one that I found in uh, 1959 in the old Ebenezer Station west of Knoxville. You remember the Ebenezer Station, don't I you? I do. It was out on the, let's see, it was out Pip's Ironwork is, the, is there yeah. now. But it's on Ebenezer Road. It was an old brick station. Of course, that's long since gone, but I found a copy of that 1913 seed catalog in that abandoned station, and that's what uh, sparked my interest to become a seed saver. That was one of the earliest things. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was uh, that was my big thing. Hmm. And of course, they had all those beautiful engravings in it, and those old varieties. Mm-hmm. But my point is, you're talking about having things all over the world. At that time, you take 1959, I would look in that book and I'd see certain uh, old varieties and I would think, gosh, I wonder if that still exists or where could I find that? You know, there was no networking at all. There were no seed-saving organizations of a formal type. Obviously, thank goodness, individuals were saving these things. Mm -hmm. But say you had something that was in that catalog, an old tomato, and... Maybe you're living somewhere in California, and I'm here in Knoxville. You'd have no way of knowing I was looking for that, and I wouldn't know that you existed. No. But you fast no. forward up to today, you can uh, take your little cell phone, have the computers on them. You can type in anything. I've had guests a lot of times up there. I'll be walking along talking about things, and I'll look back, and they'll have that out there typing in some things, and maybe something I've uh, mentioned there. And they'll show me on the screen, here comes up uh, probably a whole morning's worth of reading on one subject or one variety. It's amazing. And sources for it. It really is. And and what would I have given for that in 1959 or 60? I bet. I bet. But there was was no way of of doing it. Mm -mm. Now, they had computers uh, at that time, but they were probably about the size of your house here. Yes. Certainly not something you carried in your pocket (laughs) or had something on your desk laptop but that was uh, you know today you have the, such a wealth of information you can <clears throat> that you can bring up it's amazing it really is it's so wonderful for what you're doing and that was uh, you have to fast forward up to 1990 and that's when I became a member of the Seed Savers Exchange and I became a listed member a listed member is someone that's growing these old varieties and as a member of the Seed Savers Exchange, and they're offering different uh, varieties they're growing out. And they have that big yearbook that goes out mm-hmm. in February, real thick. And it has everything from A to Z, apples to zucchini. Oh. So, I mean, it's, it's in there if someone, a member's growing it. And that's, uh, there was one thing that I was so fascinated from the beginning with, and that was the Tennessee sweet potato pumpkin. They look similar to a kushaw, except they're bell-shaped, weigh about 25 pounds. Looks like a big bell, about so tall. And they're white with faint green stripes on them. Mm-hmm. And that's a yellow flesh squash. has a wonderful Ooh. flavor. It is kind of sweet potato mm. flavored. Make excellent pies or for baking, any kind of thing that you do with a winter squash. And I grew those last year in that Mal garden. You did. Because come when 1990 rolled around and I got the first yearbook, there were three or four sources for the Tennessee sweet potato pumpkin in that uh, catalog that they had. And I remember ordering those, and that was about January, February, 
and the seed came, and just like a little kid on Christmas morning, I got the seed out, and I'd look at them every day. I think I had them on my pillow all winter. <laughs> sit there and wake up and look at those things. And how many more days is it till you can plant? Oh, I bet. <laughs> how exciting. Yeah, how many days is it before planting time? Oh, well, so um, 1959 to 1990, that's a lot of years of saving seed. That's a lot. Well, of course, I didn't. I've been doing it about probably 50-some years. Wow. And it was very small in the beginning to start out, but now I've got, oh, let's see, I had 109 listings last count with the Seed Savers Exchange. Wow. And people write for samples. Mm -hmm. And generally you'll send out samples of 25 seeds. Mm -hmm. That's a, a startup packet, something for them to get started. We don't offer commercial size packages of seed. In other words, you're not going to get 200 seeds enough to plant a field of corn. Mm -hmm. You're going to get something to get you started, mm -hmm. and then you become a guardian of that seed, and you grow that out and increase your supply, and then you offer it to others. That's uh, how that works. You know, um, I was looking at Clemson, at a Clemson seed-saving website, and they've got all kinds of your seed. Dr. Bradshaw was there at the time that I gave him those seeds. I gave him 35 different things. Uh -huh. And that was uh, the South Carolina Foundation Seed Association. Yes. I think that has since been moved up to uh, North Carolina State now. They're not doing that Clemson anymore. Oh, okay. But that collection's intact, and I think they're working on it up at North Carolina State. Good. That's but good. I love to have those in places where people grow them out. Yes. Absolutely. If I have, say, 500 things of the seed varieties I have, and they're all preserved in the freezers at home, that's what I would refer to as functionally extinct. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're saved, but they're not available to anyone else. If you were looking for one of those old tomatoes I had or a pumpkin mm -hmm. or squash, you wouldn't know that I had it. Mm -hmm. So we've got to have these things out where they're grown. Yes. Where they're being used and passed on. Mm -hmm. That's the whole purpose of that. So yeah. the more we get out there, the more awareness, mm -hmm. then the, the better off we are keeping all these things going. Absolutely. There's no reason in the world why you couldn't grow yeah. a lot of things here. For instance, you could become a, mm -hmm. you could become a member of the Seed Savers organization. That's a very worthwhile thing when, it you, is. when you support them. It is. And you could become, if you wanted to, a listed member. You could mm -hmm. offer, you wouldn't need to have a mm -hmm. huge number. You can grow one butter bean out here. Mm -hmm. I say one because if you have more than that, they have to be isolated by at least a mile. Oh, okay. I got so, you. So you could have uh, as big as this property as You could probably have three or four beans, just mm -hmm. scatter them out different places. You're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and today we're visiting with John Koikendall, seed saver, master gardener, storyteller, and Tennessee treasure. After a short break, we'll hear a cute little story from John about the wash day pea. Well, here we are in the dead of winter, and I thought it'd be neat to take a little break with a recording of chickens that I made in the burning hot summertime down at Century Harvest Farms in Greenback, Tennessee just because these chickens sound really cute and funny. So, thought this might be a little fun thing for the day. Chicken, 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 chicken
And now let's return to our first guest, seed-saving giant here in East Tennessee, and Tennessee treasure, John Koykendall. Most all of the varieties I have have a story to go with them. I think with the, for instance, these peas that we have spread out on this muslin cloth, that to me they'd be the perfect notes. If I was doing a big lecture somewhere, I wouldn't take a notebook with notes in it. All I would do is put these varieties of peas out, and each one has their own story. They speak for themselves. That's all you would need, mm-hmm. and it's uh, fascinating. I want to tell a story. Now, this is especially for the ladies in the audience, and this story is about the wash day pea. Now, you know, wash day in the old days was always on Monday, and the pea that I have here is a very, very small, round, yellowish tan pea. And it was cooked on wash day. Now the reason they cooked it on wash day was it cooked up very fast. It would cook up in the same amount of time as you could bake a pone of cornbread. But to regress a little bit, the ladies had a real rough day on wash day. Now they had to get up before first light. They had to build fires under the cast iron wash kettles, shave the lye soap off into the water. They had those big paddles to stir the clothes with. They had battling blocks and battling sticks to beat the dirt out with. You had rinse waters. You had to wring all of that out by hand. Had to take that out and hang it up. Now, I'll tell you something. None of you ladies at that time, or today would you be either, would you want to cook dinner for the men at home? So what they're going to get on wash day is that little pea. And that pea cooks up in the same amount of time that you can bake a pone of cornbread. So that was perfect for that. Now, if you were in an especially good mood that day, hadn't had too bad a go of it, you might give them a slice of onion to go with it. <laughs> but, but the story of that, I, I love the, uh, the history and the, the story behind it. It's fantastic. That's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of history and heritage. I was thinking about that uh, last night, and I was thinking about talking about these uh, different peas. You really gain an appreciation for what people went through in those days. I came home in uh, the summertime, you know, your overalls, get uh, they get dirty pretty fast, the rest of your clothes. And I went down the basement, threw a load of overalls into the wash, turn it on, you come back up, you can sit down and watch the History Channel. You hear the buzzer go off, back down, throw it into the uh, dryer. I came back and I was thinking, my goodness, think of that, uh, the contrast. Think about 1790 when these ladies were cooking these uh, these peas. And all that day, the work that went into that, just how much uh, you're doing. And here I am today, pitch them in the wash, buzzer goes off, throw them in the dryer, and there it is. Yeah. So that uh, adds a little bit of appreciation to the wash day pea, what they, uh, what they went through at that time. It sure does, John. I think uh, another note on these wash day peas, that might have been one of the original fast foods. You know, today you'll tell Dad to go down and pick up a bag of burgers somewhere and some fries. Back then, that was that uh, that fast-cooking pea that you had on wash day. You know, we have a holdover of that today. Then, if you've been to New Orleans, you know New Orleans uh, Monday is uh, red beans and rice day. And in the schools, they still serve uh, beans, red beans and rice. And that's a holdover from wash day. That was something they could put on the wood-burning stove and have simmering while they were doing all the work with the with the wash that day. Didn't know that. So that's come down to us into modern times. That's so neat. 
And I just have to throw in one more story John has about peas. I want to tell you a story about a fellow that came to visit us up at the farm. This was about two months ago, and he had grown up in the Depression years. And he's up in his, uh, well, up in his 80s now. But he was talking about uh, living on the farm then. You know, the people that grew up on the farms, they would, uh, many of them I've heard say that we didn't have a dime before, during, or after the uh, the Great Depression. We didn't know there was a depression on. We had to, we lived the same way. And your people really that were on the farms had the better of it. Yes. I know even your doctors would work, very often they would work for trade, chickens and, and uh, mm-hmm. beans, apples, you, you name it. They, they would trade. Everybody was in the same boat. Mm-hmm. So that we all had to get along and, and do the best we could with it. But this one pea I have right here is called the Bradham Stock Pea. It dates to 1870 down in Georgia. And that came from uh, this family. And this old fellow was telling me the story. He said, when I was about eight years old, every day we had peas. Mom would make that little bowl of peas for me. And I had my piece of cornbread. They might have had some sweet potato or something else. But anyway, he said, one day I rebelled. I sat down and had a big frown on my face. I looked at that bowl of peas and took that bowl of peas and I pushed it away. And Mama asked, what's the matter, son? And I said, I ain't eating no more peas. I'm tired of them. Well, his daddy just looked at him and he said, that's all right, son. You'll eat them tomorrow. <laughs> In other words, that's what it's going to be. (laughs) That was the the choice. (laughs) That was the choice. That's a good story, John. Well, you know, most of these old peas that we have here, they all have stories because I've gotten them from old timers, people I've known years and years ago. And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Our first guest today has been John Corkendall, seed saver, storyteller, and all-around Tennessee treasure. To find details and links about John and sources of seed that he has helped to preserve, I've put links about all that on my website, tennesseefarmtable.com. And if you are interested in finding out more about John Corkendall and his work, there are two projects that have been made about him that you might find really interesting, a film and a book. The film, which is entitled Deeply Rooted, John Koykendall's Journey to Save Our Seeds and Stories, is a documentary which was compiled by Christina Milton, along with Louisiana Public Broadcasting. More information online, lpb.org. And the book about John Koykendall is entitled Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories, with John Koykendall and Christina Milton. It's a book filled with John's stories and pages from his journals from all of these years with drawings of the landscapes and characters that he's come across over the years, recipes, history of beans, peas, seeds, and southern vegetables. And more information about this book, lsupress.org. And I've put links to these two projects and all of my guests on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. Up next, we get to hear from Fred Sausman with his Potluck Radio series. And today, Fred features the lemon-lime soda from Upper East Tennessee Dr. Enough. 
This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. In 1949, Charles Gordon produced the first bottle of the energy-boosting lemon-lime drink called Dr. Enough. His son, Chuck, runs Johnson City, Tennessee's Tri-City Beverage Company today. One of the great things about a Dr. Enough is it has no aftertaste. You drink it and it's clean. Chuck Gordon says his father was a clever promoter of his products. Back in the early 50s, with the help of the advertising gentleman at the Johnson City Press Chronicle, they created a full-page ad on the back of the paper. And the layout made it look like the front page. That whole page was about Dr. Enough. The story goes that they went out and slipped a few bucks or coins to the paper boys to fold them backwards so that when you opened them up, that was the front page, not the back page. Everyone thought that was the headlines of the paper that day. Wanda Braswell has worked for the Gordon family for 42 years. It's almost like having celebrity status when people find out that I work for Dr. Enough. It's, oh, this is the lady that makes Dr. Enough, or this is Dr. Wanda. And even though it's so popular in this area, I still meet people who've never tasted Dr. Enough, and that's just sad. Dr. Enough drinkers say the beverage has curative powers. We have a family that drive here from South Carolina who swears that their mother doesn't have any UTIs since she's been drinking Dr. Enough. My mother is 97 years old. Every day that I drop by, the first thing is having her afternoon Dr. Enough. Tri-City Beverage and Dr. Enough is more than a business. It's a legacy. In Johnson City, Tennessee, I'm Fred Saussman. Hey, this is Daniel Kimbrough, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.